0: Thanks to everyone who booked, and apologies to anyone that couldn't get a slot or didn't have time on Friday. We will definitely do it again. And to my buddy Mark, who booked time because he claims that I don't answer his texts, touche. He pitched a startup idea around a community of people who love Mezcal called the Mez Pals that I give a 6 out of 10 on the idea and a 3 out of 10 on the name. He did make up for the average pun with an extraordinary pitch which began, quote, they say that when you drink Mezcal you don't get drunk, you get closer to God. I'm pretty sure that the they in that pitch is just him, but still, what an opener. Anyway, I realized after the calls that I didn't ask anyone if I could mention their ideas on the pod, and so I won't, but I loved so many of them. The whole day was incredibly energizing. So many people working on so many good things, and if I talk to you again, thank you. One thing did stick out though, and that's what we're going to talk about today. A lot of the calls had one thing in common, an entrepreneur that, whether they knew it or not, was stuck. Maybe they weren't clear on exactly how to move forward, or maybe they were just dragging their feet because the next step seemed daunting. One thing I know for sure was these founders were hard on themselves. There was a lot of apologizing, which was funny because I was pretty blown away with the quality of the pitches. And there was a lot of this idea needs a lot of work and I cannot let this thing fail. There were also a lot of questions. These range from things like, do you think TikTok is the best channel to acquire customers? Side note, probably yes. To, should I get a co-founder? To, do I have enough here to raise money? The questions usually got deeper as the conversation went on, ending with things like, do you think I should quit my job to do this? Can I do this? Should I do this? The first questions, the tactical ones, the how-to questions quickly gave way to the more introspective ones, the self-doubting ones. Should I? Can I? Are you sure? Multiple founders braced for me to tell them that they were wasting their time, but that did not come. Because, luckily, I almost never do that. I firmly believe that if your career is going to be starting startups, you should always be starting startups, and the act is more important than the startup itself. And the math backs that up, but that's a pod in a few weeks. I'll definitely help with things like tactics and focus and customer and pricing and all that. But you don't get to being a good writer by stopping writing, and the same goes with startups. Back to the founders. When I probed a bit on why these founders hadn't taken certain steps already. If you're curious about whether TikTok is the right channel, pay five TikTok creators 50 bucks each to test videos. If you're considering a co-founder, look for one, then work with someone with promise for two weeks. If you're wondering whether investors would be interested, pitch them. I heard a lot of, well, I heard great things from customer interviews, but then I ran a Facebook ad with a landing page and no one signed up, so I'm pretty discouraged. Most founders I spoke with had tried something, it just hadn't worked, and that had stung. Now they were consciously or subconsciously on a quest to never do anything that didn't work again. I get this instinct. Most things in life are not like startups. For most things in life, you can find the information you need to make a decision with a pretty high level of certainty. Can I afford X house can be figured out with an Excel formula and some projections. And for most things in life, if what you do doesn't work the way you'd planned, that's bad. As my dad always says, the bridge falls down. But in startups, the exception is when the bridge holds up. Most of the stuff you're going to do will fail and the characteristic you need is resiliency. The best entrepreneurs are cockroaches. They're Rocky fighting Mr. T in the 12th round, shouting at him, you ain't so bad, hanging around until something with a low probability of working out finally does. That reference might be a little niche, but I feel like Rocky always plays. Anyway, this means the best entrepreneurs absolutely need to do one thing. And if you only get one thing from this episode, this is the thing to get. Entrepreneurs need to separate decisions from results. Startups are the land of good, solid, correct decisions leading to undesired results. In the real world, my advice is very different. Results and decisions are closely linked, but not here. The result of that person's Facebook ad was no signups, but that doesn't make the decision to run the ads a bad one, and it doesn't make the idea any less likely to succeed. In fact, it makes it far more likely to succeed because you learned one customer, one channel, one message that doesn't work you're that much closer to the one that does, and you'll be faster executing the next test. And for reference, most startups we work with have to test at least five channels and five different messages before they can reliably acquire customers, and sometimes it's a lot more. Often, this happens before they can acquire a single customer. One of their first 10 tests will work, nine won't. So the result of the nine tests was bad, the result of the one test was good, and the overall result for the entrepreneur is incredible, because now you can acquire customers. Hitting on 1 out of 10 is a great outcome, which again just isn't natural. It's not how humans operate in any other scenario. We mostly gauge the quality of our decisions by the quality of our outcomes, which leads entrepreneurs to getting stuck a lot. We judge ourselves based on the results we get, not the decisions we make, and so we get timid after a few things don't work. We doubt ourselves and we get overwhelmed, which is the death nail for your business. Because again, if you get bummed out by your first Facebook test, where you put too much pressure on your first landing page, you'll never get to the third or the fourth or the ninth iteration, the one that would have worked, the one that would have changed your life. Luckily, you're not going to let that happen, because we've got a framework that won't let you do it. We call it the shore versus unsure framework, which as I'm saying that out loud, I'm only now realizing is going to remind a ton of people of that deodorant commercial from back in the day, but we're in too deep already, and that's the name. We've used it with founders to help them get unstuck and to stack good decisions that make progress that will eventually lead to the results they want. I've got three stories to tell you today that will help you ingrain this simple, I promise you in no way deodorant related framework. Then we'll use it to help someone working on an Airstream startup get unstuck. And to do all of that, we'll have to first start on an island outside of Charleston, South Carolina in the year 1992. Every summer growing up, my family would spend a week or two on an island in South Carolina. It's gotten ritzy now, but when we were going in the late 80s and early 90s, it was anything but. There were a few golf courses and eight miles of nearly empty beach. The land along the beach was basically wilderness. There was a company that take you on Jeep rides through that wilderness. And the rumor was that every once in a while, people would catch a glimpse of a Black Panther. A quick Google from current day Brian lets me know there probably were never any Black Panthers in that quote, jungle, but eight-year-old Brian was captivated and figured it was teeming with them. That island was heaven on earth. My family would usually drive down from New York and we'd bring our bikes. My sister and I would ride all over the island, exploring every square inch, which included a ton of lagoons. In these lagoons were alligators. Big ones. We'd watch them float completely still for hours. Then, when they saw something worth swimming for, they would move unfathomably fast, creating no wake, no warning. It was terrifying. I'm scared just thinking about it. We never got within 10 feet of those lagoons. One day, we were riding along a path on the golf course when we saw two local kids on the edge of the water. We pulled up our bikes to see what they were doing. One kid had a scuba mask perched on the top of his head and a mesh bag in his hand. The other had a string. As we got closer, we saw the string was tied to the kid with the mask and bag's big toe. He was wearing a bathing suit and he was soaking wet. What the heck are you guys doing, my sister yelped. There are alligators in there. There are also golf balls, the kid replied. Tons of them and the golf course pays us 25 cents for each one we bring in. My sister and I couldn't believe it. But what about the alligators? Well, the kid continued matter of factly. We tie one end of the rope to my toe and my sister holds the other end. I dive in there and I get the golf balls. If an alligator starts swimming towards me, she pulls on the string and I swim out. It's worked great so far. My sister wasn't about to let this go. But how are you so sure you'll see the alligator? I guess I'm not, the kid replied, but I am sure there are golf balls and I am sure they'll pay me 25 cents for them. And the strings worked so far, so. Then he smiled at us and began wading into the lagoon. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about risk, about stress, about math, about a framework to make decisions, and we're going to help a guy with his Airstream startup. All after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea in a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. As far as I know, those kids never got eaten by an alligator. But this doesn't mean it was a good decision to go diving with alligators for golf balls. The result, selling golf balls, definitely didn't justify the horrible decision of getting in the water in the first place. But the framework the kid used for a decision with incomplete information to measure what you're sure about against what you're unsure about is kind of a useful one. Our frenemies in venture capital do this incredibly well. Well enough to deserve an example in the pot. Lots of VC firms have been reaching out to us recently to make sure we're sending them any early stage folks in Tacklebox that are outperforming. This is a shift. It never happened the last six months or so. A conversation with one of these investors made the reasoning clear. The game these days is optionality. Investing in as many businesses at the earliest possible stages to get an ownership stake, they'll have the option of keeping in subsequent rounds if they'd like. Early stage investments nearly always come with preemptive rights, the right to keep your ownership percentage the same as the company grows. So if an investor gets 2% of a company at the earliest stage and that company grows like wildfire, they can continue to invest and keep that 2% stake without ever being diluted in subsequent funding rounds. Most of these companies are gonna go to zero, but the ones that don't, they'll be able to own a meaningful percentage at the cheapest possible price. Since the risk is higher in these early bets and the information is almost hilariously incomplete, VCs need to balance what they're sure about with what they're unsure about. More importantly, they need to weigh those things against the potential outcome. Every VC we've interacted with making these types of early investments is looking for one thing, B2B SaaS or subscription software. Why? In the words of one of these investors, we can get comfortable being unsure about the team or the tech or the market as long as we know that if the product does take off in the way it should, it'll be venture scale. They're sure about the business model being the one they want. The successful state of a SaaS business is a sticky product with low marginal cost that can grow horizontally or vertically or both. They're the types of businesses that get bought or go public. They are unsure about which specific investments in B2B SaaS businesses will work, and they're fine with that. I spoke with a VC the other day who'd had seemingly a bit of a tough run. They'd invested in 10 companies in their first fund, all B2B SaaS, of course, and none had returned money. In fact, all of them had already gone under. But he wasn't phased at all. I made great decisions, he said. Each investment had maybe a 10 to 20% chance of working out the way I'd hope. He continued, and my process was fantastic. We had over a 1,000 companies pitch us, our funnel presented a bunch of investment-worthy opportunities, and lots of these founders are now starting new businesses and we've got goodwill with them. We're likely to be able to invest in their new companies if we'd like. I wouldn't change a thing about those 10 investments, and if we make 25 more decisions like that this year, which is the plan, we'll be in great shape. There's so much luck that goes into a startup being successful, it'd be incredibly short-sighted to overreact to these 10 companies failing with a giant shift in strategy. Our strategy is sound, it's just that every business has a 10% chance of working out. When that's the case, you'll have runs where 10 companies in a row don't work. It doesn't mean you should beat yourself up or blow up the system. When you flip a coin five times, sometimes it hits heads five times in a row. That doesn't mean the odds change on the sixth flip. In a scenario where luck is heavily involved and probabilities of success are low, but the payoff for success is massive, separating decisions from results is critical. This investor does it beautifully. The only problem with this strategy is how obvious it is. Everyone knows SAS businesses work. If what he was sure about was more unique, he'd be on a better path. A few years after seeing the golf ball hunters in South Carolina, I was golfing at the same course. I told the golf pro the story and he said, yeah, he was aware kids used to do it, but he said it was theoretically safe in that lagoon. It was man-made and had a cement bottom and a drain and a machine in there that scared the alligators and there were no fish in there anyway was basically an empty pool. And as far as he knew, there'd never even been an alligator in there. The kids knew that too, he said. That was the only one they'd go fishing for golf balls in. Sure versus unsure. Okay, let's see how this works in practice. Someone pitched me this idea recently and was cool with me using it as an example in the podcast. They live in West Virginia near the mountains, and about seven years back had bought a remote plot of land by a lake for dirt cheap. There was nothing there and no way to get supplies to build a house up there, so they put an Airstream trailer on it instead. They hired a photographer to make it look great, a designer for the interior, and they put it up on Airbnb. It became a reliable source of income for them, and they eventually bought another Airstream and plopped it on the far end of the property. Then they added a third. Next, they bought another plot of land nearby and put three airstreams on that one. Business was steady. Business was good. As a side note, if you've never been in the mountains of West Virginia, it is stunning. I drove cross-country during the pandemic, and aside from Moab, West Virginia was the prettiest place we saw. Anyway, the business he pitched me was basically a franchised version of what he'd been doing for years, with a few ambitious twists. He'd find plots of land that could hold three to five Airstream trailers and sell them to people trying to get a revenue generating asset. He'd handle everything, the Airstream, the decor, the photos, the cleaning, the posting. He'd take a service charge and a percentage of monthly rentals. But the Airstreams were only half of his idea. The whole pitch was a marketplace with a membership attached. He'd have Airstreams in the woods all over the country and a community of people who'd pay him monthly to stay in them. Maybe a hundred bucks or so a month is a membership fee, which knocked the rates on the Airstreams down significantly and gave you the ability to book them. No more Airbnb, it'd all be done through his site. He'd read about how sticky communities were and he thought this might be a great opportunity for one. Members would be able to rent the Airstreams at a discount, but they'd also get invited to concerts and events. There'd be a discord group. It'd be way easier to meet people with similar interests than it was now. The goal was a lifestyle brand, for the city dweller who stayed in an Instagram-ready airstream on the weekends. The pitch was compelling and he delivered it well. I gave him a softball question that I figured he'd knock out of the park. Okay, so where are you? What's the progress? This is an ambitious project. What are you biting off first? I've never seen someone's demeanor change faster. Suddenly, he was frantic. Well, that's what I need to talk to you about. I know this is the idea. This is it. This is the biggest and best idea I've ever had, and I don't have good ideas. I need it to work, but I'm stuck. He started talking faster. I don't know how to start selling these Airstreams to real estate investors. I don't know if they'd wanna be members or what type of return they'd want. I think I need to have the land before I try to sell them, right? Won't people be pissed if I don't? But that's a ton of money up front, and where would I buy? I wanna sell to city dwellers like New York City people, so that'd imply Adirondacks, but I've never been there. My Airstreams are in West Virginia. Also, since it's a network, I need the tech built because I'm not going to use Airbnb for bookings. I don't think it's too hard, but it's maybe 10 to 20 grand, and the design needs to be great, and I don't have that money. Also, I need to get members before I do it. I think like 100. So members, then land, then Airstreams, then investors, then website. Jesus, what am I doing? I need to raise funding, right? Where are those first members going to stay? What are they paying for? I don't know what to do. Woo! I literally thought he was going to curl up into a ball on the floor. And while this is a bit of an extreme example, I see this sort of thing a lot. And I've seen it from founders when they were at the idea stage of what is now a massive business. This isn't rare or really even a red flag. It's just kind of a rite of passage, but that doesn't mean we don't have to fix it. Okay, I said, as he looked at me begging for a life raft, let's take a step back and start with a list of what you're sure about and what you're unsure about. And we did, on a big piece of paper. We drew a line down the middle, sure on one side, unsure on the other. There's was one more column under unsure which said confidence percentage. Sometimes the simplest things are the best. He was sure that people would rent Airstreams for a hundred bucks a night in West Virginia. He was sure a bunch of them would come back and do it again because he'd seen them do it. He was unsure about just about everything else, but with varying degrees of confidence. He was unsure that people would invest in these homes, but it wasn't all that big of a stretch. He'd done the math and he figured he could return them a few hundred bucks a month during the warm months. He was less sure that people outside of New York would stay in Airstreams, but again, not crazy unsure. It was a behavior people already did. There were plenty of Airstreams in the Adirondacks and Airbnb, and they all seemed to be sold out most of the time. He was really unsure that he could get people to rent on a site that wasn't Airbnb, that he could get them to pay monthly for the right to book and the community, and that he could create a community worth joining. But of course, people do rent from sites that aren't Airbnb now, and some people pay for communities but the community part was by far what he was least sure about. Once we had a list of what we were sure about and what we were unsure about and a rough degree of confidence, we started chipping away. The sure versus unsure list can be pretty daunting, especially if there's a lot of stuff on the side that you're unsure about. So we need to start with the most important stuff. What, I asked him, do you need to be right about for this iteration of the business to work? What do you need to nail that's on the unsure side? Immediately, it became clear the community was fluff, and unlikely fluff at that. It was gone, never to be thought of again. Next, we realized what we wanted to test was that New Yorkers would rent Airstreams in the Adirondacks from a site that wasn't Airbnb. So that became the goal for the next two weeks, to figure that out, to make a bunch of good decisions that would hopefully help us learn more about this customer, and to put on blinders for the rest of the business. I was watching a YouTube video the other day where Alex Honnold, the guy from the documentary Free Solo who climbs up massive rock faces without ropes, convinced the number one Dutch climber to climb a mountain without ropes with him. The Dutch climber had never done this before and was terrified. It is a great watch that I highly recommend and I will put it in the show notes. Anyway, at one point, the Dutch climber is starting to freak out a bit. He's looking up, he's looking down, and Alex realizes. He starts to calm him down. He says to focus on the single move in front of him. It's an easy move, he says, one an intermediate rock climber could easily do, let alone the best rock climber in the country. Nothing before you matters, nothing after you matters, just what's right in front of your face, Alex says, and you can do everything that's right in front of your face. That's how I think about startup work when things feel overwhelming. So the Airstream startup feels overwhelming until we break it down. The riskiest part is that people in New York City will rent an Airstream from a non-Airbnb site in upstate New York. So let's see if they will. The likelihood that your first stab at this works is really low, which takes the pressure off. Do the thing in front of your face. I promise you can always figure it out. So a test for this to learn more might be putting up Instagram ads for an Airstream in upstate New York that exists on Airbnb, but you put pictures of it on your own made up Wix website. When people click to buy, if they click to buy, it'll take them directly to the Airbnb page where they can rent. You can track whether they click, you can get their email, you can talk to them. Maybe you directly message people who have posted pictures of themselves in upstate New York in Airstreams or cabins. Maybe you go to the Phoenicia Diner, a crazy popular place for your target customer, and speak with people directly about how they rent. Maybe you try a hub and spoke strategy. You cold email a bunch of HR departments to offer this as a perk to their employees. Maybe you email people that already own Airstream trailers and rent them out and ask them about who tends to stay there and their relationship with Airbnb. There's zero chance that all of these work the way you'd like them to. Maybe one does, maybe none do. But the goal is to slowly increase the level of confidence you have until you're comfortable making the bet. Stacking good decisions, running tests properly, figuring out confidence levels and improving them will lead to better theoretical outcomes. But the biggest goal here is progress to keep moving forward and making bets, to keep trying things. Lower the pressure of the idea. Think of the long game. Entrepreneurship is probably something you'll be doing your whole life. Successful entrepreneurs aren't the ones who make the best bets. They're the ones who make the most bets, who are constantly trying things that have a 10% chance of success without being phased when they don't work. Because things with a 10% chance of success aren't supposed to work. You're searching for the unique outcome, which is impossible to predict without trying a lot of stuff. Best entrepreneurs separate results from decisions, from their ego. They act like cockroaches. They do the thing that's right in front of their face and they survive. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and want to work through it with us, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in under 72 hours. We could be working on your idea by Sunday. Have a great week.